Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. For four weeks, this is our fourth, we've been talking about sin. Not because we're one of those churches that gets off on talking about sin or beating people over the head with it. But because it's one of the most misunderstood concepts of Christianity. In fact, we put it to you that last week that one of the greatest misconceptions your friends, your non-Christian friends will have about Christianity is not their view of God, but their view of sin. When I talk to people, non-Christians all the time, about what sin is, then they define it as good deeds versus bad deeds, as things that you do that are bad. And what we've seen over the past three weeks is sin is far more nuanced than that. We've seen in the first instance that sin is a form of self-denial, that we humans almost have an infinite capacity to not know a truth that we really do know because that truth is too painful or inconvenient. We've seen that sin is a stalker. It's the Terminator 2, T-1000, that sin is far more than just deeds. It's a power. We've seen last week that the genesis of so much sin is not funny little evil thoughts, but really a dynamic that we, the Bible calls self-reliance. And it leads to all sorts of things, self-righteousness for one, racism another. And so that's how we've seen that sin is often misunderstood. It's not thought in those terms. Now, four-week series, I've, I've, I've got about seven more to go with. <laughs> so we've had to come to a point here as we close up this week that we could keep going in that way and we're not going to go that way. If you sense there's a turning point in the reading that we have this morning. And the reading this morning now turns from looking at our sin to a dynamic called Repentance. What do we do with sin? This passage gives us the answer as to what we do with sin. Now, even when it comes to repentance, I feel a lot of churches have mucked this up for people. And as a result, you get three different types of people in the world. You get the people over here that says, I've blown up my life. I can't stand myself. I hate myself. I feel guilty before others. Most of all, I feel guilty before God. I'm a Christian, but I can't escape this feeling. Then you get people over on this side normally the christians that say well yeah repentance i've repented yeah it's cool i don't i don't need this stuff i live a good life i'm under control compared to most then you get people in the middle which is most of us i would say that says yes look i can sense that there's not there's something not right within me i've sensed the 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 times in which i have gone against the grains of god's universe i know i should be changing i know i should be different but i'm not i can't Um, there's anger there's bitterness i can't let go of this why am i not changing and here's why i think it is I think it's primarily because we Christians have mistaken remorse for repentance. So my question to you this morning is, do you know the difference? Have you felt it? Have you experienced it? Have you lived it? Have you experienced repentance in the way that we see the Bible intends it to be? Now, I'll put it to you. I don't think you have. And here's why. Because I'm the pastor. And when I came to this passage this week, I had one of those holy moly moments where I sat with this scripture in hand and I leaned back in my chair in the study and I I said, Lord, I, I haven't got this. I've been remorseful, but I haven't got repentance. 
Now, the great thing is we get a case study of it and it was shown why. Let's look at the context here. Let's look at the occasion for this psalm. It says here, have mercy on me, on Lord, according to your unfailing love. Blot out my great, uh, blot out my transgressions. Uh, what is, this is a psalm of David. What has David done here? Here's what David, David's done. David has blown up his life as much as anyone can. He had a best friend called Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, his best friend, is off fighting an army for him as king. David was a good king. He was one of the best kings Israel has ever seen. Everyone loved him. It was all going right for him. And the best friend goes off. And David's hanging out in his penthouse apartment up on the roof in Jerusalem. And he looks over the top of the roof and he sees a gorgeous young lady hanging out in her penthouse apartment. And, and as the eyes are scanning the city, he gets a little bit of leg, a little bit of flesh, and he thinks, I've got to have that. And so he meets Bathsheba, and they spend the night together, and he has an affair with her, and he gets her pregnant. And so he thinks, well, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll call Uriah back in from war. I'll tell him to come into the city. You've been doing such a great job. Look, why don't you just stay home for the night, and why don't you go and sleep with your wife and just have some special husband and wife time? And, and Uriah, such a man of integrity, says, I can't do that when, while my men are fighting. And David's like, shucks. There goes that one. So he sends him, sends him back out there. That excuse doesn't work. Sends him back out. And he says, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll get, I'll get my other general, Joab, to go and put Uriah into the front lines. And so he might accidentally get killed by one of the enemy that they're fighting. And that's exactly what happens. And so then Bathsheba mourns him. And then David marries Bathsheba quickly before she has the bub. And now everything's right, right? Cover up. Sort of don't have DNA testing back then. She had a kid. It's all working. It's fine. He's home safe, right? No. Then he meets that guy, Nathan the prophet. Nathan preaches to him one of the best sermons that has ever been preached. Nathan says there were, there were two men. There was a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had a, a great, wonderful flock of sheep. And the poor man had none except for this tiny little lamb. And the poor man looked after that lamb. The lamb lived in their house with him. And he slept with that lamb next to him. And the lamb ate from his own dish. And then the rich man came along and he ripped the lamb out from the hands of the poor person. And he gave it to his guests for dinner. And David says, who would do such a thing? That is a whole, what a heartless, self-centered thing to do. Who is that thing? Where is that man? And Nathan says, Thou art that man. And David's devastated. He's blown his life up. Where's my credibility as king? What am I going to do? How am I going to recover from this? I can't be king anymore. I can't govern anymore. I've mucked it up. What what, what am I going to do with this? He's plunged into despair. How's how's he going to go another day? Here's the question. This is one of the great heroes of the Bible. And I don't know about you, but most books tend to put their heroes up on a pedestal. They're flawless. They're superheroes. David is one of the great superheroes of the Bible. Question, why would the Bible include this in here for us? I think there's two reasons. One's one's affirming and one's challenging. The challenging one, it says that sin can sneak up on the bravest and the best people in the world. 
If this could happen to David, it means it can happen to anyone. And so it means for the person over here who says, oh, repentance is not for me, I'm generally under control. This says, no, 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 this is for you, if it can happen to him. That's the challenging part of it. The beautiful part of it is this. It shows us that no matter how much you blow your life up, it is still repairable. That sin is surmountable. Because at the end of this psalm, David comes out of this and he's not guilty. He's not the person in the middle. He's not beating himself up. He comes out of this, what? Rejoicing. I'm going to tell everyone, God, as to what you've done. I'm going to sing your praises. He comes out rejoicing. So the question for us this morning is, how did David come out rejoicing after looking at his sin like this? And I think the answer is, he finally understood the difference between remorse and repentance. How does he do it? He does it like this. What is repentance? Repentance is mind sweeping your heart for IEDs. Uh, the army calls them improvised explosive de- uh, devices. I call them innermost explosive devices in the spiritual sense. But repentance is mind sweeping your heart for things that if you stumble across in your life can blow it up. And so he mind sweeps through this. And what I want to show you this morning, there are four elements here that you need to have. If repentance hasn't brought you joy, if you're still in the middle here and you're beating yourself up and you're still feeling guilty, then you haven't mind swept your heart properly. There are four elements here. You've, you've done something, but you haven't done repentance. And so how does David do this? Four things. He sees it. He sees his sin. He owns it. He melts it. And he leaves it. He sees it, owns it, melts it, and he leaves it. Here's the first thing that we see him doing. He sees it for what it is. If you catch what David is doing here, you're going to find the first vital turn in the pathway towards repentance and not remorse. Verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now that's a weird way to talk because you're saying, well, hang on, against God, like what about... Uriah, what about the kingdom of Israel? What about everyone else who's been part of this? How can you say against God? Is he just trying to forget what he's doing here? But it is so subtle but powerful. You know, 2 Corinthians 7 says, Paul says, there is a godly sorrow that leads to deliverance and there is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. So in other words, when you're in sin, you will have a sorrow, but there's two different ways that you can deal with this sorrow. And here's what it means in practical terms. Wouldn't you agree that there is a difference between being sorry for the consequences of your sin as opposed to being sorry for your sin? There's a difference. And David gets this difference in this passage. Remorse is this. Remorse is being only sorry for the mess that you got yourself into. I'm sorry that I've mucked my life up. I'm sorry that I've lost my job as a result of this. I'm sorry that I can't drive my car anymore because of this. I'm sorry that I've wrecked a relationship because of this. It's all, it's all me, me, me. It's all poor me, poor me. And, and we see that remorse is very self-focused. It's all me. It's all about you, which ironically was the very thing that got you into this mess in the first place. <laughs> can't you see that remorse is just an aggravated form of self-pity? That is, that's the petri dish of sin, self-pity. It will, sin will always grow in that. 
And so if you, if you go down that path, if you're, if you're sorry about the consequences of your sin, then you're going down the pathway of remorse. But see, notice how David finds the repentance because he sees the sin for what it is. He says, against you, Lord. And here's what he means by this. You know, imagine that you spend the whole day searching the mall for a present for a really good friend who's going through a tough time and go through Maya and they would love this and go buy the present. You go home, you wrap it up, you take it up to them and you hand it to them. And when you hand it to them, they go, Poof, smash it out of your hands. <laughs> How do you feel in that moment? You're pretty upset. Uh, but it's not upset about the cost of the present because the cost of the present's fine. You can go buy another present. What are you upset about? The pain and the hurt comes from the hurt that they've caused you relationally. How could you be so insensitive to do such a thing to me when all I was doing was loving you and caring for you? Anyone ever been in that situation? <laughs> David recognises that with this God, his father, this is the feeling this is what he is doing to God against you, I have sinned. I've, I've gone into this and I've taken this beautiful gift of yours. David said, saw this. He says, you are my father. You've created me in my mother's womb. You, you've appointed me. You chose me. You gave me the power. You gave me the kingdom. You uphold every breath of mine and I do this to you. I slap that present down. And so what it means for us is that when we see sin for what it is, not as an act, but as sinning against God himself and a rupture of the relationship, we come to realize that from God's perspective, sin is never a matter of magnitude, but attitude. <laughs> if you're a father of a little kid who goes and tramples over your treasured possession, like at the end of the day, you can work with that. There is no sin big enough in your life that God can't deal with. So it's never a matter of magnitude, it's a matter of the attitude. And your attitude into that, can't you see how seeing it for what it is leads you down the path of repentance and not remorse? If you see the sin as being against God, then you are sorry. You're going to be sorry either way, but you're sorry for the right reasons. If you don't see it as against God, then you're just sorry for what you've done. You're sorry for the circumstances. That's remorse. So you've got to see it for what it is. Second point, a little bit faster. I want to bed that one in. Second one is you've got to own it. He sees it and then he owns it. If you want to go through repentance properly, then you've got to own it. He says against you initially, so he sees it for what it is. Here's the second thing that he does in verse 4. He says simply, I've sinned. I did it. He takes full responsibility. He owns it. If you want to move into repentance, you've got to own it. I look at the world around us. You know, how many people have done horrible things in the world? And when I look at them, I don't think they woke up in the morning thinking, oh, look, yeah, well, I'm going to go out today to go and do a wicked thing. <laughs> no, they, in fact, they spend all their time and all their energy and all their focus trying to find reasons to justify why they've done that thing, trying to find reasons to not take responsibility for what they've done. And so they don't own it. We spend endless amounts of energy doing that, right? You just have to watch an episode of Judge Judy. 
I was watching one the other day, Monday on the day off. There's a defendant there. Their dog had bit a little girl. There's photo evidence. There's four puncture wounds in there. They're looking at the photo. They said, Judge Judy said, did, did your dog do it? No. Well, there's puncture wounds. Was it your dog? Yes. Was it with the kid? Yes. Was it in the proximate area of the kid? Yes. So did it do it? No. <laughs> and she says, just take responsibility. Lover. I love Judge Judy. We all need Judge Judys in our life, don't we? That's what Nathan was. He was like an Old Testament Judge Judy. Just own it, David. Oh, like at a more serious level, what about good old Dave Cameron's efforts after the Brexit? The comments said to his aides as he goes through and resigns. What was his response? Why should I have to deal with this? Take responsibility. I think it was his government that led them towards a referendum, hedged his bet, own it. Here's the secret here. Look, what if tomorrow you had an opportunity to tell a lie? What if you did, you're going to make a heap of money, and what if you don't, you're going to lose a lot of money? Now, if if you do lie, here's what I want you to see. There's a sin before the lie. What I mean by that is you can't wriggle away from sin and say, oh, my circumstances made me do it. It was just the context that I was in. (laughs) There has to come a point, and the point of this, and what David owned, is to say at the beginning of every sin, if you get right down to the depths of it, if you cover away all of the excuses in it, there comes to a point where in that little inner voice of yours, it simply said to you, I want to do this. You can't say, oh, Bathsheba should have put more clothes on. Or Uriah should have been back from war. Or I shouldn't have had my eyes open. Or she shouldn't have been out on the roof. No, mate, at the, at the base level, you wanted to do it. Own it. We live in a society where we are not taught to own things. You may say your circumstances shape or contribute amplify, even trigger your sin. Yeah, of course, but you must understand sin, sin is only ever caused at that deep point because you want it to. So own it. See it? Own it. The third thing then is, well, what does he do next? He melts it into the mercy of God. He sees it, he owns it. Now he melts it into the mercy of God. Here's how he does it in verse 5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What David is saying here... He's saying that there, there is a nature here to all of this. This is not just a set of deeds. There's something happening inside of me. And what he's effectively saying is, I am no longer concerned about the consequences of my sin. I am far more concerned with my capability to keep doing this. He says, I've got a problem, Lord. This is a nature within me. I, 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 need, I need some help here in all of this. And this is what it means. David realizes that he is dealing with something that a bunch of second chances just won't fix. He's, he's wrestling with something deep underneath all of that. 
And how does he do it? Verse 1, he gets it. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David, David begins to melt his sin into the mercy and the grace of God. You see, repentance, is, it's violent. But it's a violence of flame, not by the knee. Here's what I mean. I've said once before, there's two ways to bend a metal bar. You can shape a metal bar by forging it in a furnace at 300 degrees and it's very easy to work with. You can also shape a metal bar over your knee. I have a sense as to which one will break first. And the whole point in this, when David takes his sin and melts it up into the mercy and the compassion of God, now he moves into a dynamic where he begins to melt his heart, the very dynamic that's doing this, into God's love and grace. So what it means for you is if, you keep, if you're the sort of person that keeps beating yourself up with a hammer about this, because you think, if I don't obey, God will just get me, then you're not seeing why you did what you really did. And you'll end up hating yourself and not the sin. You'll end up breaking your knee on the bar because this stuff will keep reoccurring. But if you see who he is and what God did for you and how much he values you and loves you, you'll hate the sin for itself and it'll start to lose power over your inner parts. You've got to melt it. You've got to forge it in the furnace of his mercy and his grace. Guys, we're Christians. We know that a bunch of second chances won't do this for us. It's not enough, so what do we do? It's the final step. He sees it, he owns it, he melts it, and then he leaves it. But he leaves it systematically. And here's what I mean by this. It can't mean that he just leave, walks away from it. Oh, I'm going to move house, so I'm not next to a beautiful woman anymore. He doesn't leave it that way. And it, you know what it, mean? it means? It, it can't mean for us this morning, and it crosses your mind as a pastor because we Christians do this all the time. It can't mean that the way that you leave your sin is that we're going to have little post-it notes down the front for you and, and you're going to come down and you're going to scribble that which is either blown up or about to blow up in your life and scribble on a bit of paper and scrunch it up, walk out for a coffee and say, gone. Because <laughs> we know, guys, it's, it's not gone, is it? It haunts you. And partly that's because we see from David's life, sin has, still has its consequences. If you look at David's life after this point, his life turns into a mess. Go and look at what happens in his kids. It's horrific. His life's a mess after this point. David's repentance is not got saying, oh, David, okay, I'm glad you repented. This is not going to hurt anymore. Of course it's going to hurt. And so it can't mean leaving it to just, oh, I won't think about this anymore. But also, positively, if you don't leave it that way, sometimes the consequences of our sin are the very ways that God teaches us. When I was a little kid, I, uh, a toddler, I was obsessed with our oil fire at home. It was so lovely and warm, glowing in the lounge room. And so as a toddler, I'd wander across and I'd pull up my little singlet and I, I kept wanting to touch my stomach on the fire. And dad would walk in and catch me. And he says, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. Stay away from that. And it was just so warm and enticing. And, and 
And then I would look. As, you know, we do this as Christians, right? We hope to get to a point when dad's not looking so I can do it. And he wasn't there anymore. And so I snuck across and I pulled up my singlet and I touched my stomach onto the glass of our oil heater. And screaming in pain. And I said, I told you not to do it. And what do all parents say like that? You'll remember never to do that again. <laughs> the consequences of our sin can teach us, right? The element by which the Father can teach us. And look, sin is, sin is always so wonderfully warm from a distance, isn't it? Sometimes we've got to learn. We've got to feel that. But we can't leave it there. We need to move into something more beautiful and wonderful in all of this. You know, the grace of God is such that, yes, there are going to be consequences with your sin, but look, you, I don't know about you, I'd rather be dealing with a burnt kitchen than a burnt down house. And we see this with David here. When he says he leaves this, it doesn't mean that he tries to forget this. What's his revelation? Verse 10 is his revelation in here. Here's how he leaves this. Here's how he finally moves to repentance and not remorse. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And it hit me this week. David is not looking for a second chance here. He's looking for a whole new system of life. Create in me a new... You know what he's asking? He's asking here to be born again. And we must understand as Christians, or even non-Christians if you're listening in, is that look, being born again is not some garden variety of Christianity. Catholics, Protestants, born again. No, it's a whole new way of life. He says, Lord, I don't need a second chance. I need a whole new system of life. I need a new heart. And here's what it means. A new heart means this. To leave, to leave the way that David leaves is to mean to leave the, the self-saving systems, the self-reliant systems of the heart that caused the sin in the first place. And can't you see that is why we never dealt with lust and greed and materialism and addictions and all these things that happen in this series. Why? Because there is always a heart system behind these things. You know that. You don't just wake up one morning thinking, I'm going to be greedy. There's something within that system that says, unless I have money, unless I have power, then I'm not someone in the world. The system underneath that says, I'm not valuable unless I have this in my life. The system under that says, I've moved away from the love and the identity in God. That was last week. Can you see the system? So David leaves by moving away from his self-reliant systems of the heart. You can't just leave it in your mind. I found, some, I found some great advice on the internet that does this. <laughs> Listen to a, a couple of these tips. Um, there's, I've got four here. They, they came in 12. It says, admit you're powerless over this thing and that your life has become unmanageable. Step number two, come to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. Step number three, make a decision to turn your will and your lives over to the care of that power and come to understand it make a searching and fearless moral inventory of, of yourself admit to god and to yourself and to other humans the exact nature of what you're doing wrong own it be entirely ready to have this higher power remove all of these defects of your character 
humbly ask this power to remove your shortcomings. And friends, there's some of you who knew that you know these steps all too well. They're the four steps of the 12 step program. There's someone who's seen the consequences and the pains of um, alcohol in one's family life and the rest of it, having journeyed with many with, with that particular challenge in your life, you come to realise that, that leaving for an alcoholic in this situation is not a matter of writing down on a piece of paper and throwing it in the bin and saying it's gone. They have to leave systematically every single day. Friends, we need to be real with ourselves in this and say, whether it's that particular issue or whether it's sin, we're all 12-stepping in this place. We've all come to a recognition that we are powerless and what we see are reflected in those steps. Well, where, where did they get them from in the first place? The thousands of lives find victory and find freedom around the world on a weekly basis because they go through everything that we have seen David do this morning. You've got to see it, you've got to own it, you've got to melt it, and you've got to leave the systems behind you constantly. As we come to the table this morning, I just want to ask you, have, have you, have you mistaken remorse for repentance? What do you need to do with that this morning? As we come to the table, I want us to look anableptically. There it is again. That's one I haven't used in a while. You've, you've got to look up and you've got to look inward. There's two aspects to our sin that we must always look at. The first one is individual, of course. What is it that you need to do this morning? You're not going to get through all steps, all four, before we get the coffee. I'm just asking you, do you need to see it for what it is? Do you need to just own it? Do you need to melt it into the grace of God if you've been beating yourself up? Or do you need to leave the system behind? Some of you will do that this morning by placing a faith in Jesus Christ and admitting that you're powerless. Step number one. But we also have to recognize corporately that something is going on in this. And if you read the Bible, there is always corporate consequences of the sin. Just read about Achan in Joshua. Just read about Ananias and Sephora in Acts. And it leaves us with this question, church. What is God seeing in us as a community that lurks beneath? Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people just humble themselves and pray... I will remember their sin no more. My heart and my desire and my passion for this whole series is to say we've always been a little S church when it comes to sin. Why is that? I think very reasonably it's because many of us here in this place have been beat up by the way that churches have mucked this up and you found hope and healing in a church that was not going to smash you over the head with it. But friends, I believe this is a watershed moment for us as a community. I believe this is a moment where we're no longer defined by being a little less church because we recognize that when we are a big S church and we call sin for what it is, it gives us ever greater resources to go and launch into the grace and the beauty and the mercy of God. 
and we become a church that is not all grace and we're not a church that is all truth, but we're a church that is grace and truth. And so I believe that this morning as we come into corporately in this, maybe there's, maybe there's some repenting that we do too corporately as a church. Is to say, Lord, we, we need you and we need to humble ourselves before you. When we do that, friend, if we're doing it right, we're going to find, hopefully, maybe not right now, but in the days and the months and the weeks to come, we will find a joy and a beauty and a wonder because we have journeyed through this repentance, because we continue to remind ourselves of this, my favorite verses we finished this morning, that for all that we have done and we sense that is deep within us that could be better, we have a God that says, as far as the east is from the west, I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us in this moment of ministry now. I pray for every brother and sister in this place that, Lord, unless we've been asleep, Unless we've been absent for the past four weeks, there can't be something deep within each and every one of us right now that we need to bring to you and that we need to do business with you. And whether it's seeing it, owning it, melting it, leaving it, Father, we invite you into this moment of ministry now and we dare to believe that something profound is going to happen in this moment, in this place, as we as a community and as individuals humble ourselves before you and are thrust up into the the wonder and the beauty of your unfailing compassion and love. And so, Lord, may we um, rejoice this morning as we come to communion and as we reflect upon um, his outstretched arms and the work of Jesus Christ, the lives that we know we couldn't live and yet he lived, the punishment that we as Christians know we deserve but yet he received Father, we thank you for his gift this morning and that we have every resource to move out of this place uh, singing, at least at some point in our lives in this coming future, should we do it right. Be with us. Work amongst us now, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.